that triathlon show for an N20. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Jem Arnold. Jem is a PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia and we have a really interesting discussion with some topics directly relating to research that Jem's been involved in and others related more to understanding the application and limitations of sports science and even things like big data, which I think uh, is a super important topic to have a good understanding of, especially if you are interested in using things like sports science directly in your training. And Jem does a really good job of explaining these issues and how to think about certain things and certain limitations that exist here, I think. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Form. The Form smart swim goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training right on the goggle lens, including splits, pace, stroke rate, and heart rate. This means you can execute your swim workouts better and get a better idea of your ability to hold certain paces and stroke rates and understand when and why you start to slow down. The best thing is that you can see and interpret this data in real-time in the session, so it's actually actionable and can help you right then and there. Also, especially if you're swimming solo, it adds some more fun and engagement to swim training, which might make you look forward to your swim sessions in a completely different way. You can get 15% off the goggles with the code TTS15 on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer allows you to improve your technique, power and swim training consistency, even when you're short on time. It's a great tool for busy athletes because you can do a quality workout in just 15 minutes at home, even on days when you don't have time to get to the pool. And it is a perfect complement to pool and open water swimming as it allows you to focus specifically on key aspects of your swimming, like your catch and your power, and isolate them more easily than you can in the water. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days, so if you don't love it, just send it back, and you can get 20% off your first order on senatesumtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now without any further ado, here's the interview with Jem Arnold. Welcome back to the Triathlon Show, Jam. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Michael. Yeah, thanks for the invitation back on. Yeah, it's great to have you back. I will, of course, link to your original appearance on the podcast in the show notes for listeners that haven't uh, heard it. But uh, maybe you can just start with a brief introduction to yourself anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so I'm Jem Arnold again. I think I was on a year or two ago with you. Um, I'm a PhD student at, or I guess I'm a PhD candidate now at uh, University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. I mostly work with endurance athletes with uh, uh, vascular issues, vascular conditions related to sport. So cyclists with flow limitations in the iliac artery, some runners and triathletes as well with popliteal artery or compartment syndrome stuff. I'm a physiotherapist as well. So that's kind of that clinical background, but uh, the PhD is very much more physiology. Um, what else? I do some metabolic testing with NIRS. We talked about near infrared spectroscopy, muscle oxygenation a little bit last time. Uh, 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 yeah, so kind of that dabbling and all that kind of stuff. So there's a, a bit of a clinical and a performance aspect to, to the work I do. And, and are you still coaching on the side? I know that in the past, at least, you have done quite a bit of coaching. Yeah, I'm not coaching any individuals right now. Uh, I Occasional kind of almost consulting for other coaches and other organizations. And it's the same with metabolic testing. Like I'm not actually doing much testing myself. It's more I'm doing the, the data analysis for a bunch of different centers and, and different projects, which is, is fun. That means I get to, you know, stay at home and uh, uh, play with da data all day, which is, yeah, more fun than it probably should be. 
<laughs> nice. All right. So, uh, yeah, one of the questions or one of the topics that I wanted to discuss uh, here today is because you were recently involved in a meta-analysis. So I'm just going to check the title. The additional effect of training above the maximal metabolic steady state on VO2 peak, W peak, and time trial performance in endurance-trained athletes a systematic review, meta-analysis, and reality check. That is a mouthful, yes. Yeah, that was a mouthful. That was all with together with uh, past guests on the show, uh, Michael Rosenblatt and uh, Hannah Nelson, Jennifer Watt, and also Steven Seiler, who's been on the show as well. So maybe you can just give a bit of an overview what led you to conduct that meta-analysis, and then we'll go into some findings. Yeah, yeah, that was a fun project. Uh, it's it's really Michael Rosenblatt, his work. Uh, I know he's been on the show. He's talked about some of the meta analyses that he did for his PhD, which was kind of affected by COVID. So he ended up doing a series of meta analyses rather than experiments, looking at um, training programming, interval programming. And and he was here in Vancouver at the time. So we, uh, I can't remember how we met, but anyways, we started working together and kind of brainstorming. Um, about all of this kind of stuff. We're both geeks about training, optimization, and all this kind of stuff. And and so we're kind of gradually expanding the scope out to, you know, the first work was really on programming a single session. And now we're thinking about, okay, what do kind of a series of training blocks or a, a, a training intervention, how does it look? And if I can tease maybe some future work, we're starting to look at periodization and a little bit more broad scope stuff. And of course, uh, it was great to kind of have Steven Seiler come on board. He was quite interested in the project. This is, well, first of all, we were using some of the data from his uh, previous work. So some of his well-known studies, you know, one of the, the uh, famous ones looking at four by four minute, four by eight minute, four by 16 minutes. Uh, so this is really in his wheelhouse as well. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I guess the, the, the intent or the question that we wanted to ask with this project was looking at, first of all, looking at trained athletes. So we're interested in, uh, these are all endurance trained athletes, uh, very different fitness levels, but they're all trained in their sport. And we wanted to ask the question, what, if we compare two groups, one group doing all of their training below threshold maximal metabolic steady state that probably deserves some explanation we can get into that but basically if we think about that as ftp or critical power however we want to operationalize that the the kind of the, the maximum oxidative uh, uh workload right so one group was doing training below that threshold i'm just going to call it threshold for now compared to another group that was doing some of their training above threshold. So basically the addition of high intensity training in a training intervention, would that change outcomes to uh, uh, VO2 max and uh, time trial performance or endurance performance? Those are kind of the main two parameters. Um, uh, and, and so, yeah, we, we, I mean, again, Michael Rosenblatt did most of the work. He gathered all of the studies. I was really just there to do some brainstorming and think about the story and the interpretation of, of, of what we were seeing in the data. Um, some of the results might maybe were obvious and some were less obvious. And, and uh, I guess we can get into the results, what we, what we found. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So, so, um, so again, VO2 peak and time trial performance were kind of our two outcome measures. So would the addition of high intensity training to a training program, so not, not, sorry, like, just, just one, one note there, VO2 peak for people not used to it, we can, we can call it VO2 max as well, but uh, that's right. it's basically because some people don't need reach a plateau necessarily, but, but it's what we normally exactly call VO2, VO2 max colloquially, at least. Yeah. And, and I think we're very explicit about that. We, 
looked at both depending on whether the original studies called it max or called it peak, right? However they defined it. And it didn't actually matter in the end. So we just kind of, we can call it interchangeably peak or max. So I might even go back and forth. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of, you know, the, the, the maximal or the peak rate of oxygen uptake uh, tested with a ramp test. And um, uh, 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 yeah, so the two groups we were looking at, one was performing, all of their training was low intensity or under threshold, right? So low or kind of medium intensity. And then the other uh, group included high intensity interval training. And we saw that the high intensity group, the group that some of their training volume was high intensity, they did improve their VO2 max performance sorry, their VO2 max more than the group only performing low intensity training. So I think that's kind of a, an expected takeaway. That would be our hypothesis, right? All of the prior work looking at high intensity training uh, seems to be beneficial for VO2 max. So that makes sense to us. Huh? The, the, the unexpected finding was that time trial performance was not different between those two groups. So even though the one group increased their VO2 max more than the other group, and I should say, like most of these groups increased in, in everything. It's just that the high intensity group increased their VO2 max more, but they didn't increase their time trial performance more than the low intensity group. That performance was the same. So that was maybe an unexpected outcome. Yeah, I guess one one thing here that I want to, to ask is, this is not something I think that you explicitly talked about in in the actual review but when you looked into the the studies that in the eventually were included in in the analysis itself did you find that most of them had more of that moderate intensity training like let's call it tempo mm -hmm. sweet spot even threshold training or was most of it kind of just low intensity or was it or or could you even discern that because i think in some yeah. in some intervention studies it's hard to say really what they're doing yeah, that's that's exactly the issue. Um, I don't think we explicitly said that because of that exact issue. It's kind of hard to determine uh, um, different studies has have different ways of operationalizing the different thresholds, right? I said MMSS, maximal metabolic steady state, uh, is kind of the, the the concept of this. You know, again, the the, the maximum rate at which you can uh, produce all of your energy more or less oxidatively, and then above that, you're getting into this non-sustainable. Um, exercise intensity. So even there were different ways of operationalizing that. Some was CP, some was were, were FTP, some were MLSS, maximal lactate steady state. And then there's even more issues defining the lower threshold, whatever we want to call that aerobic threshold or lactate threshold one. So we, I don't think we even were able to analyze that. Um, again, teasing future work, we are maybe able to analyze that in, in the future, but for this, it was really just grouped together that any, uh, any, any groups that were performing kind of a quote unquote control training, or some of the groups were just continuing their existing training. So again, these are all trained athletes uh, and, and maybe they were just told to continue their standard, you know, base training essentially. Um, so yeah, we kind of grouped together the, the. Uh, the groups that were doing any training in the moderate or the heavy domain or kind of, oh, I, I don't know what zones you want to say, kind of one, two, three, four, depending on your zone system. But yeah, all of that was kind of the same. Yeah. And then the other one is in in these studies, uh, in the original studies uh, that were looking at these things, did they generally control for total work or total volume? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, they they did, and and I I couldn't tell you case by case. Again, Michael has a nice uh, Rosenblatt has a nice you know massive Excel sheet that has all of these data, so it was accounted for. Um, the nice thing to consider it, it wasn't as if you know one group was performing low intensity training and then the other group was doing that plus high intensity you know, bonus training because then you would definitely expect to see a difference. So yeah, within each of these studies, it was fairly well controlled how they were matching. Some of it was matched by time. Some of it might have been matched by a t- total work or total training volume. So it did change. The nice thing though is that when we did this analysis and through meta-analysis, you can kind of look at all of these uh, sources of clinical heterogeneity, basically differences between the studies that you might expect contribute to uh, your findings, contribute to differences in the findings. And and what we found was a lot of that stuff just didn't matter, surprisingly, right? Because all of these studies are different. They're using, uh, uh, well, different sports, different interval programming, um, uh, the, the, the interventions were different lengths. So I think the longest was 12 weeks. I think it was two to 12 weeks between the different studies. So there's all of these huge differences between these training studies, but actually when we pool them all together, none of that makes a difference to the ultimate outcome. So it didn't change the main result, which is VO2 max improved more with high intensity training. Time trial performance did not improve more. It still improved, just it was the same regardless of the training intensity. So that's a nice takeaway. It's encouraging. It makes it simpler. Huh? Yeah, 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 for sure. And I think that leads us to the realm of speculation a bit. But uh, what do you think? Why might it be that that time trial performance did not improve further with the addition of high or the inclusion of high intensity interval training? Yeah, yeah. This is the fun one. Uh, I think I think we were pretty conservative in the paper and kind of talked about the more boring methodological potential limitations and regions. And we can get into that and that's quite important. But, you know, maybe if we start thinking about more uh, of the speculative uh, uh, rationale um, and we've had some discussion subsequently to, to publishing it, that's been really nice to think about the, um, yeah, the story here. Um, there's a couple potential reasons related to time frame. And, and I said, right, these studies covered a, an intervention period from two to 12 weeks. Uh, so quite a, a large difference, right? Two weeks is basically a single training block. 12 is kind of a couple strung together. And we're starting to think about maybe some periodization or something like that. Um, again, that difference, that factor didn't change the outcome. So that's quite encouraging. But we have to think, well, is it possible just that... Um, uh, in order to kind of translate the improvements in physiology that we were seeing, those improvements to VO2 max, in order to translate that to a real performance outcome out on the road or on the ERG or on the whatever modality they were using, maybe it requires either more time or um, maybe that's where we have to start to consider how these uh, training blocks were periodized and the sequence or the order or, you know, whatever we kind of think about. So there's a little bit of a question mark there of um, uh, if 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 we continued, you know, these training interventions, and especially if we continued the shorter ones, would we start to see t- time trial performance kind of catch up to VO2 max? So that's one possibility. And, and that's why, you know, when we're training uh, uh, for an event, we hope that we have more than two weeks and even more than 12 weeks to train for it because of course we know as coaches it's going to take a lot longer to kind of gradually get yourself up to that point um you can only do so much in two weeks so that was one of the rationale 
Um, the 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 other one that's related to time is again something I don't I don't think we can pull this information from the studies uh, unless we go back and, and contact the authors. But um, I think we understand now the importance of a taper period before a target event. You know, will reduce our training volume and and maybe preserve the intensity, but reduce the volume of intensity for some period before the target race, whether it's uh, a few days or a week before a, a, a more important event. And so we have to think, again, I don't think we know when these participants would have been retested after this training intervention. But if a group's going through 12 weeks of training, and you know, worst case scenario, the, the, the researchers ask them to come back into the lab the day after they perform their last training session, they're still going to have some fatigue and the performance test is going to uh, show that, right? So, so fitness will have improved and maybe that's why we saw this improvement to VO2 max. But if there's still a higher level of fatigue, maybe those athletes just weren't able to express that capacity, that physiological capacity in their performance. So again, speculative, I, you know, I don't think we can say one way or another, um, but something to consider because the takeaway is, first of all, again, we we are not talking about tapering here, but I think tapering is an important concept for athletes to keep in mind. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a really interesting point there about the timing of tapering or or basically recovery. I've actually I remember once having done uh, a, a short short VO two max block. I think it was three weeks, but I did three really hard via to max workouts per week over the course of those three weeks or uh, the, the final week was two of them and then the the third one was supposed to be basically a, a time trial at above threshold intensity but something that i could hold for 20 to 30 minutes and 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 i remember just being physically tired mentally just completely yeah, cooked. and exactly. i couldn't uh, i just couldn't couldn't hold it for anywhere near the time that i should have been able to even even in a non-tapered state there so so that might play into it for sure yeah yeah there's there's an idea maybe we can come back to it but but um you know the, the there's research into responders and non-responders and again that's kind of a different concept but i but i want to raise that because um there's some kind of well-known studies that you know maybe they they did a pre-study observed non-responders which is to say in a training intervention there's going to be some athletes that improve a lot some athletes that don't improve much and some maybe that get worse and those would be considered non-responders, quote unquote. And it's kind of a, well, a, a bit of a controversial subject. But, you know, there's studies that just increase the intensity, it really drove these non-responders with, with a higher volume of high intensity exercise. And sure enough, they saw that they improved, they got better. So these non-responders suddenly turn into responders when the training has been intensified over some period of time. Um, but, you know, one of the studies, I can't remember the, the authors of the title off the top of my head, you know, they asked, they pulled their participants and said, would you continue? Do you want to continue this training intervention? And they all said, no, it's, it's impossible. I can't do it. It's too much. Right. So that fatigue builds up over a period of time where, yeah, their VO2 max improved by a massive amount. Uh, but is that sustainable over a long term? Yeah, not really. Yeah, and then the other thing that comes to mind here, I had uh, Philip Larsen from Sweden on the podcast some time ago, and I've, maybe you're familiar with uh, some work that uh, that they did a couple of years ago. I I believe when 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 they just looked into how the mitochondrial respiration gets more inefficient after a certain number of high intensity workouts, basically is what it boiled down to, if I if I remember correctly, and and I do remember that's one of the 
potential practical applications that he that, that he suggested on in that interview was that well maybe training blocks when we're working on a specific type of intervals maybe they shouldn't be too long because you get into that point where you're you're maybe driving mitochondrial efficiency down so you're no longer getting the improvement so and and that would maybe show as well in a uh in a time trial performance so i don't know it, exactly yeah, that's a really good point, right? You can kind of pick apart, and and we have a pretty good sense of the time frame for uh, different physiological improvements, right? So I think one of the earliest improvements is just a an increase in blood plasma volume. Um, uh, we start to see um, uh, uh, stroke volume increase as a result of that plasma volume. We'll gradually start to see increase in hemoglobin mass. All of this is increasing the carrying capacity of oxygen in our in our blood, uh, increasing oxygen delivery to the muscles. Then we start to see yeah, mitochondrial increases, whether it's mitochondrial content or, or respiratory capacity. So we kind of have a sense of how these um, factors increase over time. Uh, but you're right, over kind of an acute training block, high intensity training block, we'll certainly see potentially a trade-off between capacity and efficiency. I, you know, I, I kind of like to talk about this, this trade-off all the time because Anytime that we kind of have to, you know, our, our, I'm anthropomorphizing, our body is making decisions, quote unquote, you, you get what I'm saying. Anytime our body has to uh, meet a certain energetic demand, it might have to prioritize just kind of brute forcing it, you know, pushing the energy through at a loss of efficiency. And uh, when we talk about high intensity training, the, the stimulus from that, the adaptation to that, yeah, it could be that we're getting this kind of transient um, but damage really right we're, we're, i mean that's the point of training is we're damaging our tissue so that they rebuild and uh remodel themselves to a stronger state afterwards but if we're testing them while they're in that damaged state yeah potentially it, it's kind of uh uh you know they, they might be able to kind of consume more oxygen right if we're thinking about mitochondria that would lead to observing higher vo2 peak but if we're not getting as much contractile work performed as a result of that energy throughput our efficiency will have decreased and we might not see that increased capacity translate to an increased performance output. So yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not a mitochondrial researcher, but, but I know uh, uh, Larson and, and, and Bishop is another one. Um, they've done some really interesting work on this stuff in recent years. Yeah. So in the title, you teased a reality check. And I think that's maybe one of the practical applications that we'll get into. But but before we get into that part, uh, are there any like training-wise, any practical applications that that you can think of from from these findings? Or or does it all feed into future research that or that you're working on right now? Yeah, that's a great I mean, that's the fun part, certainly, is like what are the implications of this? And again, I think we were conservative and the paper was kind of written to an audience of sports scientists and you know briefly like one of those methodological limitations that we're hinting at here is just sample size and you know in sports science we're constantly limited by a small number of participants um let's let's say that we can get back to that whole thing but yeah the fun part is like if, if i'm an athlete if i'm a coach why do i care about the findings that uh, time trial might not be different whether i'm performing training below maximal metabolic sta uh, steady state FTP, critical power, whatever we want to call it, or if I'm training above. I think that's a really interesting finding. Um, I'll bring in one of uh, Michael Rosenblatt's other meta-analysis, which I think he would have talked about when he was on your show, looking at high-intensity interval training. And now, again, we're thinking about a single training session. And what he found by looking at all of the, lit of the literature was it didn't seem to matter 
what intensity that high 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 intensity interval training was performed at what seemed to be important was the total duration of uh, well each each work bout and then the total duration of work within the session so as long as it's what he found in that paper was as long as the training was above this threshold increasing the intensity you know in the severe domain didn't matter but increasing the duration of that training did matter and so if we have to think about now well okay it's obviously a trade off i can either go more intense for a shorter duration or i can go a little bit less intense for a long a much longer duration um uh his conclusion from that paper was that a longer training bout at a slightly lower intensity seemed to be more effective for time trial performance and this is that was specifically for time trial performance outcomes so now we're looking as i said kind of a step back from that we're looking at not just one session but multiple sessions a tra- multiple training weeks and we're seeing that yeah that that threshold intensity actually maybe doesn't matter for time trial performance either so we said okay we wanted that intensity to be above threshold but once we're above threshold just kind of go as not as long as possible but you know what i mean longer tends to be better now we're actually seeing oh maybe it actually doesn't matter if we're above that threshold at all um because whether we were above or below in this context didn't seem to make a difference to, to time trial performance you asked earlier are these athletes performing all you know low intensity zone 2 moderate domain or are they also performing heavy domain sub threshold sweet spot tempo in a in a cycling context whatever we want to call it um and 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 again they were probably performing both different groups were performing that so i wonder and this is speculative but i wonder if i think and i think coaches would would you know support this empirically i wonder if if we're thinking about time trial outcomes the specificity of training at kind of a relevant workload a relevant intensity which is to say maybe around threshold but it doesn't need to be necessarily above or below it can kind of be either and then it's just a trade off between increasing intensity or increasing duration and it seems to be that increasing duration seems to be the, the way to go so that's the speculative you know uh, uh applied takeaway here that I think that's a really interesting implication and again definitely to be validated in future research but if I'm a coach reading this you know again it it almost simplifies things uh for me I think yeah I I really like that a specific example uh, about what what you were talking about you mentioned the Steven Seiler study 4 by 16 versus 4 by 8 versus 4 by 4 so the 4 by 16 would probably have been uh, performed at around threshold or maybe even slightly below 4 by 8 a bit above threshold and 4 by 4 quite quite a bit above threshold and and in the study they found that the so so if if you're here sticking to the comparison or the the Michael Rosenblatt study where they strictly talked about studies performed above threshold the 4 by 8 would have been the more effective which in that study by Steven Seiler they they were the mo- most effective and the more effective but than 4 by 4 also more effective than 4 by 16 so maybe they were just like a little bit too low But then the other thing that that speaks to what you were saying is uh, this is I'm I'm not uh, by any means as familiar with you uh, as as you are with these these studies but but I've seen the studies that I've seen that are comparing the high intensity interval training type of of work with more continuous type of work they often seem to use something like 70% of VO2 max which would be solidly in that temper range and and then they do like an hour 40 minutes in in that range so it, it seems to often be those kinds of workouts when they have a set program not maybe when they're continuing their own 
training that they've designed themselves but so so maybe maybe those that type of work would have contributed to the positive results for let's say training below threshold or at least not not any downside compared to training above for tangible performance specifically yeah i i think that's the takeaway you just said it right there it's it's um it's probably not a downside you know we can kind of do whatever, um, and then it almost leaves it to us as coaches and athletes to make the decision based on other information. So uh, what does the event look like, right? Our training should probably be specific to that event. Uh, obviously, what does the athlete, what, what does the athlete's capabilities or what is their preference? What do they like doing? What are they actually going to adhere to when they're training? So we can kind of take it out of this um, hyper optimization around physiological outcomes, which I love. Yeah, I, I love discussing that stuff. I think it's really fun and, and, and valuable to understand all the minutia about, you know, optimizing physiological outcomes. But the more we look into this, the more we just see it probably doesn't matter much. And so we need to start with the basics. I mean, that's always the takeaway. What, what matters is, is just doing a thing and doing a thing, uh, you know, uh, more precisely is less return than just doing a thing at all so yeah that's the important takeaway yeah yeah and also another important takeaway is that it's not an indictment on on high intensity interval training at all because still you did see that high bigger improvement in vo2 max so potentially if you have more training cycles you can then use that to build a ceiling and then then raise your performance towards that ceiling again so so that's and that's maybe what you what you said that you are working on in some ways with periodization or possibly yes yes that's exactly right though yeah exactly we definitely saw a a significant and a meaningful increased additional improvement to vo2 max i think the the it equaled about two or three units of vo2 max so um, milliliters per kilogram per minute i think it was about two or three which sounds small but again, these are all trained athletes. So again, after some you know years of training, I'd be pretty happy to see a two or three unit increase in a in a four, six, twelve week training block. I think that's pretty good. We know that uh, that uh, VO two max is of course correlated to endurance performance, and maybe this is now getting into some of the the methodological stuff. But uh, in the paper, we talked about the the Joiner and Coyle model of of endurance performance where we would say time trial performance, endurance performance in general is proportional to, they talked about three things. And I think nowadays we would talk about four things. And one of those, of course, is VO2 max. So there's definitely an association. Of course, we would expect an increase in VO2 max to uh, uh, produce an increase in time trial performance, but it's not going to be one-to-one because we have these other aspects to consider. So those are, so the three aspects they talked about were VO2 max, um, fractional thresholds. So basically, where is your threshold relative to VO2 max, essentially, and then gross mechanical efficiency or or exercise economy. And that's kind of the ability, and I touched on it a little bit before, that's our ability to turn oxygen into energy into work output. So it's kind of that that uh, that whole efficiency of the metabolic process. Um, uh, for example, in running, that has a huge effect. There are large differences in running economy between different athletes. In in cycling, there's actually not a lot of variability because there's no impact. So there's less influence of tissue properties and elastic recoil and all that stuff in cycling. But in running, certainly that has a large effect. And then the fourth aspect we have more research on now is durability or resiliency or fatigue resistance, whatever we want to call it. And that's kind of how well are we able to preserve those other three factors 
as we fatigue during exercise. So during prolonged exercise, we'll have some kind of systemic fatigue and, you know, our, our, our threshold, our critical speed, our, our FTP, whatever, at the start of a race or start of a training session is going to be higher and it's going to be lower at the end of that um, exercise session. So durability is just basically how much does it decay or how much are we able to preserve it? So those factors go into time trial performance, which means, again, if we see an increase in one of those factors, VO2 max, for example, we might not necessarily see an equivalent increase in time trial performance because all of those other three factors might be moving in any direction randomly, right? So uh, I, I talked about trade-off between capacity and efficiency. Maybe we see an increase in capacity, that's our VO2 max, but we see a temporarily uh, loss of efficiency in our gross mechanical efficiency or our fractional threshold. And then our TT performance just may not change because of that. So again, all of those things are kind of moving. Um, uh, it, in, in some respect, they move together as in an elite athlete, you know, all of those factors will probably be better than a, an untrained individual, of course. But if we were just looking at within elite athletes, or as in the meta-analysis here, we were looking at within this relatively similar group of trained athletes. So within that group, we're going to see all of these factors are kind of all over the place. Uh, and so again, that's, that's maybe why we are able to identify this significant increase in VO2 max. But when we look at this kind of holistic performance outcome, uh, we are not able to distinguish the difference. Maybe not that the, like, again, both groups improved, um, but the, the, the variability in that outcome is greater. And so we can't be confident that that improvement represents a significant difference between those groups, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. So maybe we move into some limitations that you did discuss quite in depth in, in this, in this meta-analysis. And, and it's not just limitations of, of this work specifically, but maybe more general to sports science as a field. So can, yeah, can you discuss that a bit? Yeah. So I, I hinted at the boring uh, uh, conclusion of this study, you know, which is certainly not boring for, for researchers. I think it's quite important that we consider is the limitation of sample size. And, and this goes back to kind of what I was just talking about that um, if we have an outcome measure, if we're interesting, interested in detecting a difference in an outcome measure that has a lot of variability. So both VO2 max and especially even more so time trial performance have a lot of variability within the population, this, this population of trained endurance trained athletes that we're looking at. And the, the effect size that we well, the, the effect size that we observed, so right, the, the effect size that we concluded in VO2 max was again a difference of about two to three units mils per kg per minute, which is quite small, meaningful, but small. So if we're interested in identifying a, a, a small difference, it means we need a huge number of subjects to actually be confident that we're identifying a systematic difference uh, kind of in, in most of those individuals. Because again, right, all of those, we, we are sampling individuals from a population. Uh, we are hopefully sampling it, uh, those individuals randomly so that they have kind of a random distribution of all of the unobservable traits, all of the different characteristics that we know affects endurance performance, VO2 max, all of this kind of stuff. We're not controlling for all of that. We just have to kind of hope that all of the athletes that we sample from the population have a representative uh, distribution of those traits. 
And then given that we hope those traits kind of wash each other out, if we uh, if we then can observe a systematic increase in this outcome measure across all of those athletes, then we can be confident that that represents a real change. But again, a smaller change means we need more athletes to be more confident that we're seeing that. So we identified in this paper the effect of VO2 max uh, would require a minimum of about 80 participants per group. <laughs> which is, I, I think the largest study that we included had 16, one six participants, meaning I don't know if it was 50-50, but let's say it was eight and eight. So, so in order to actually be confident, we uh, detect that small but meaningful effect size in VO2 max, we would need a, a study 10 times the size. And that just becomes logistically impossible. So that's part of the importance of meta-analyses is that we can then pool all of these small studies together and, and, and kind of really um, identify with a little bit more confidence whether we're seeing an effect, but that's also potentially why we are not able to see an effect in time trial performance because number one, there were even fewer par uh, uh, subjects, fewer total number of subjects who had time trial performance outcomes tested. And like I said, time trial itself has more variability in it than VO2 max. And so again, if 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 both of those outcome measures, VO2 max and TT, improved by 5%, the outcome measure with more variability in the population, we are maybe not going to be able to distinguish that as a real effect, even though they increase by the same amount. So yeah, that, that was really kind of the, call it a methodological or statistical limitation. Uh, again, I think really important um, takeaways for the sports science community. Yeah, and and I think as well for for coaches and uh, and athletes listening, it is important to understand when when you look at an individual intervention study and and you look at the the sample size of it, the, the limitations of that, and and that's why, uh, yeah, as you say, meta analysis uh, are are so so important. Even though, of course, that also they also have their limitations, and we are depend we depend on the original intervention studies to to have yeah, meta analysis in the first place. But yeah, it's it's important to approach those intervention studies with a with a bit of a grain of salt if they have small sample sizes. Yeah, and it's it's just about kind of you know I, I, taking into account yeah what what is this study able to to show us? Uh, what population is it looking at? What kind of effect size is it identifying? Is this something that that seems like it's a home run and it's a huge effect size and it's and all of the athletes, all of the participants are moving in the same direction, or is it like uh, you know some increase, some decreased? Right? I talked about responders and non-responders earlier. So uh, is it is it something where you know we're going to see a random distribution in the population? But overall, it looks like it increases a little bit. It's an important finding. It could be very meaningful. Um, and, and I think coaches can look at even small sample size research and, you know, use that as part of their application. But, you know, you, you wouldn't want to drop everything and change everything about how you're training an athlete when you look at the latest study that comes out on, you know, six university untrained males <laughs> and you're and you're training an elite level female you know it, it kind of considering yeah yeah what you can interpret from the study and apply it to your population of interest yeah yeah and 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 that i think is the same whether we're talking about meta analysis or 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 a single study for example michael rosenblatt's uh, work on the 
on on high intensity intervals and which ones were most effective for time trial performance and when when i first saw that work and talked with michael about it and so i was really interested and uh, in in the findings that yeah potentially longer intervals are more effective but that said as a coach i also saw a cohort of athletes that really didn't seem to respond well or even be able to do that type of training very well so right. meaning that there's still uh, a very important place in the coaching toolbox for those shorter intervals regardless of what a meta-analysis says absolutely yeah absolutely and uh, Another thing that I wanted to ask you about, this is something that you've done some great work or threads about on Twitter or X, is uh, about th- things like how, how the individual outcome is not really, you, you can't really predict that uh, even if you have good confidence intervals and uh, narrow confidence intervals. So can you, can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to uh, uh, explain it um coherently uh i'm 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 not a statistician so that's first disclaimer is like don't listen to strangers giving statistical advice on the internet uh i don't know what i'm talking about but this is kind of how i understand it in in an applied context right um but but yeah i've I've touched on it a couple times here uh talking about responders and non-responders talking about the the, the variability of a parameter in a population so again if we are are thinking about trained athletes as our population of interest and and we look at vo2 max and we look at time trial performance i think i could actually be wrong about this but maybe let's pretend that um uh you know there's probably more similarity in vo2 max or which is to say there's less variability in this population of trained athletes in vo2 max and there's more variability in time trial performance um again i don't know if that's actually true but and and can i can I ask for a clarification there? So when when you say that, do you, you mean in the change of VO2 max to an intervention versus the change in tangible performance to an intervention? In this case, we could just talk about kind of a, a single point value, right? So okay. at some arbitrary point in time, you know, we 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 are able to measure all of these athletes in the population 100% and we get their real VO2 max value, they are really in actuality going to have lots of differences, right? Of course, right? You, you, you line up at the start of a, of a race and the people around you are going to have very different VO2 max values and they're going to have very different uh, percentage threshold values and different economies and right. All of these will be, will be different. And the combination of all of these factors leads to the performance outcome of that, of that event. And that's kind of the, you know, the magic about endurance training is you, there are many different ways of getting to the same place, but, but anyway, so, so maybe, uh, maybe it'd be simpler to talk about, um, threshold power, you know, FTP number, right? If we, if again, magically test all of the athletes at the start line of a race, their FTP numbers are going to be very different. And that represents real variability in that population. So again, if we think about performing research and kind of, um, uh, uh, looking at group level data or, or group level interpretation, what we're doing is we're sampling random number of those participants from that population. And we're hoping that they have a spread in VO2 max values that, that kind of represents the real distribution in the population. Uh, what group level research is trying to do is making single observations from multiple individuals to represent reality basically. On the other side is, you know, individual level experimentation or, or individual level data, which is more like what coaches and athletes, what we're doing ourselves, 
which is making multiple observations from a single individual over time. In both cases, we're making multiple observations and we're using those kind of multiple observations to, again, wash out any random variation, any kind of random noise, all of these potential sources for variability in VO2 max or in power output, whatever parameter we're interested in. And we hope that what 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 is left over when we kind of uh, average or or synthesize all of those different observations is you know a representative kind of truth <laughs> about about reality that we're trying to describe. So maybe let's let's kind of back up and talk about again. Let's think about VO2 max and performance outcome in in the the meta analysis that we looked at. Um, uh, the idea is we're taking these single observations or we're taking a kind of a pre and post test from multiple different participants who have different variation. If, if uh, the, the outcome that we saw in VO2 max was again, on average, a two to three unit improvement. But of course, I think intuitively we can understand that if we were to look at all of those individuals who went into that average outcome, they're going to have differences that are all over the place, right? Some are going to have a huge increase. Some are going to decrease. That's that idea of responders and non-responders. And when we're interested in group level research, we kind of don't care, you know, because again, we're attributing those differences in, now we're talking about a change in this value. We're attributing those differences to random unobserved, you know, sources of variability. One of the athletes didn't sleep well the night before the, the test. Another athlete, you know, had a coffee and had the best time trial of his life. Um, uh, another athlete got injured maybe and couldn't perform the training, at, right? All of these just random kind of factors that we don't care about. We hope that they come out as a wash. And given all of this random variability, if we still see a, systemic, uh, a systematic improvement in the group level outcome, then we can be quite confident that for most people in this population, this intervention has a positive effect. As a coach, you know, again, I can look at that outcome at a group level and I can say, oh, okay, so probabilistically, if I apply this training intervention to the one or the few athletes that I'm working with, you know, I can I can be more confident than not that it's going to push them in the right direction. They're going to respond to it. But I have no idea how any one individual is going to respond because I don't know any of those random unobserved factors that the study has you know, accounted for. But if I'm just working with one athlete, I don't have an opportunity to wash out all of those differences. I have an athlete with the characteristics that they have. So that's where, again, uh, um, knowing nothing else about the athlete, if I have a new athlete come to work with me, I can only go by uh, kind of the available group level evidence and I'm kind of just using that as a starting point, but I have no idea what direction that athlete is going to change in. It's only with repeated observations of that athlete, right? So every training session is an experiment. Uh, every time an athlete comes to the lab and does a, does a test, it's, it's an experiment. And we're using that information over time to then understand about that single athlete, okay, all right, what what are these? How are these random characteristics um, affecting this athlete, and how is this athlete going to change? And we're using that information to then predict outcomes and prescribe training in the future for that single athlete. So it's it's it, it, yeah, the whole message here is is a lot about translating group level research to a single individual, and it's. It's, it's tough because if you know nothing else about the athlete, 
you kind of just have to start with the group level approximation, but you can almost guarantee that, you know, there is no such thing as the median athlete, right? It's going to be just anywhere from, uh, uh, well, whatever the real range in this, ver uh, in this variable is in the population, they could move by that amount. Not sure if that's the best explanation, but again, we're getting there. I think we're getting there. Yeah. No, I think I think that it's quite common to for for athletes that they start to get into like this kind of thing, like sports science, and and uh, and are really into like learning about uh, newest interventions and so on. I, th I think for a lot of people that it, there comes stage in in that understanding where you think that you're owed that two and a half unit improvement in VO two max if you do a certain intervention, but but that's not how it works. You might do the intervention and you improve by seven units or you decrease by two and and because you don't know what are the variables that were washed out in the study that that you uh, that, that you have so for example somebody who has a very stressful job they're a single parent and and they they have lots of responsibilities at work trying to do an intervention study that has you do doing five uh interval sessions a week which uh, there are studies like that for a couple of weeks or one week uh, that might not be the best idea so it might be a great idea for somebody who has a bit less stress in their life and they can get a quick big improvement but for you maybe that's not but that's, that's just one example of, of of how these things can work but it's yeah you, you have to kind of almost remove yourself from thinking that just because this the group level response was this that that's something that that will work for you you have to put yourself in a situation okay what are the variables that will impact my response to that intervention yeah that's right and, and again maybe we can like take some of the images that that was in the the twitter post or actually i actually just rewrote it and put it on my blog because yeah twitter or x or whatever it is it's kind of falling apart these days so i want to have another source of information but you know it's it's a visual thing, or at least I think about this visually. But if we imagine a a, a normal curve, a bell curve uh, of of the population, right? So we have some parameter. Let's talk about VO two max within trained athletes, right? We we're going to have some athletes who are down at I don't know um, thirty thirty five female athletes, right? Are going to tend to have lower lower uh, values. But let's just think of everybody everybody together. You know, there's going to be athletes down at thirty five. There's going to be athletes up at seventy five. It's it's a it's a broad range. Um, there's going to be more athletes kind of in the middle of the range, of course, that's the bell curve, but there's athletes all over the place. So, of course, if we take the mean of all of those athletes, we're going to get a, a mean value of, I don't know, 55. Um, so the idea is when we're sampling from that population, when we're when we're choosing athletes randomly and, you know, we're in sports science and we're plagued by small sample size, so we're only able to to, to select 10 of those however many athletes, we hope that the, the, the mean uh, VO2 max in those 10 athletes will also be somewhere around 55, but you know it's probably not going to be because it's only 10 athletes. As we increase the number of samples that we take from that population, of course, our, our, our estimate of that mean value will approach the real true mean of the population. Because again, of course, if we magically tested 100% of every single athlete, well, then the mean is literally the same. The, the population equals uh, the, the sample. Um, so, so that's kind of that, that group level estimate, right? That mean improvement by 2.5 units of VO2 max. But we had athletes who were starting at 35. We had athletes who were starting at 75. We have athletes who, are, who improved by 10. And we have athletes who got worse by 10. And, and that variability exists. So when we're trying to predict 
you know, the next athlete that we test from the population, we've tested 10, we have this mean VO2 max estimate. Now we're testing our 11th athlete. We have no idea whether they're going to come in and have a VO2 max of 35 or of 75. They could be anywhere within that normal curve. Again, there's a probability estimate that they're going to be somewhere close to the mean, but you don't know that for sure. So you can't predict where your next athlete or where yourself is going to test. And again, that's like knowing nothing else about these athletes. So again, that's the importance of coaching is that we we don't know nothing. We know a lot about our athletes. And the more we know about our athletes, the better our ability to make predictions, the better our confidence can be about uh, uh, our, our expected outcomes and how this athlete is going to respond to the training that that we're giving them. Yeah. Yeah, that, I think that that's a really nice way to to summarize it. And le- and leading from that, what are your thoughts on big data and and how how that can be used in a sports context for an individual with things like wearables and so on? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Um, in 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 general, I mean, again, I'm I'm a huge geek. I I, I love using gadgets. Um, it, there, there was a time where, you know, I, I didn't actually train. I just did pilot testing and I would, you know, load myself up with all of the lab equipment and the, all of the nearest and take blood lactate measurements and put on the temperature sensor and everything. And I, and I love it. And I think it's really interesting and really valuable to kind of learn insights. But that's at an individual level and that's repeated measurements over time. When, when, when we're thinking about, and and I, I don't know if you've had this question, but I, I see it come up every so often is like, um, you know, Garmin has or, or whatever agnostic to the to the device. But, you know, my watch has all of the information from however many millions of people are, are using these devices and feeding data into these algorithms. And, and yet it's still sometimes so poor at predicting my VO2 max or, 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 you know, what does this sleep score mean? How, what, how do, how do I use it? Um, those are kind of the issues. Again, all of these kind of gadgets have a massive treasure trove of data at a population level, but we're always going to be limited by the, the real variability in that estimate. So, um, the, you know, again, on the thread I posted, there was a great figure of just a cloud of data, essentially, right? So figure and picture an X, Y axis. I don't even remember what it was looking at, but there's observations, there's data points just all over. It's a big, it's a big cloud. And through the middle of the cloud was a, a line, a linear regression, you know, that pointed kind of slightly up into one direction. And so the finding was like, oh yeah, it's, it's significant. It's positive. Look, there's a relationship here. So therefore, whatever X arbitrary gadget measurement value is correlated to why real performance outcome. Uh, again, on a, on, a, on a group level, you can say that, but me as an individual, I have no idea where I am in that big cloud of data. I don't know if, if uh, uh, how, how, how far away is, 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 the, is my observation from this arbitrary mean observation. So um, we kind of have to consider again, this limitation that for however much data these devices gather and however smart the you know uh, machine learning learning algorithm is in the background it's always going to have more difficulty predicting an individual outcome um, maybe a simple example is is bmi right body mass index bmi is like classic you know it's been used forever 
Um, and it does have pretty good explanatory value of health outcomes at a population level. But if we look at any one individual, BMI is almost meaningless because you can have two individuals beside each other of, you know, of the same height and, and BMI is a ratio of height to weight. So you could have two individuals of the same height. One is overweight, has a lot of um, uh, fat mass, and the other is a bodybuilder, and they both have this exact same body weight, but their body composition is completely different. BMI would be the same value, and it's going to predict the same health outcome for those two um, individuals. And so it just doesn't make sense to apply this population parameter at an individual level. And so I think that's maybe a a, a failure of, of of gadgets to do this. Um, uh, yeah, it's you know there, there there is information that we can gain from looking at this population level outcomes, but when it's trying to predict individual outcomes, and then individuals are trying to use those numbers to then inform their decision making, right? I I am using this VO two max number, or maybe uh, you know my my device predicts a race time, and I'm going to go out at that pace. Well, there's going to be a, a variability in how we respond to those numbers. So it's it's certainly a weakness that we have to kind of yeah keep in mind. Yeah, I think that I have a few other questions, but I think we kind of talked uh, through most of most of the things here. Is there anything else that you feel like we missed in in this discussion? Because I, and this was kind of what we we have had some quite some chats about what we wanted to bring with this episode and and kind of understanding this almost the discrepancy between what we can find with sports science versus what an athlete and a coach needs mm-hmm. to do at, at an individual level. And, and I think like we, we've conveyed that quite quite well, but yeah. is there anything missing yet? I, I hope so. I hope it's kind of made sense for, for the audience. Um, um, I, I think the, the, the last part of this, and, and, and again, maybe we don't go super deep into this, is, is um, uh, now if we're thinking about this individual level you know, coaching or right, application of data, um, and, and we're taking repeated measurements from the same athlete over time. If we think about the, the variability that we should expect within an athlete, so we've kind of been talking about variability between different athletes, but of course, there's always variability within an athlete on any given test day or any given training session, right? Um, if I'm going at 300 watts on one day, my heart rate is 175, and on the next day, it's 170, and on the next day, it's 178, right? There's always variability uh, within individuals in those outcomes. And, and that was another paper that we recently published. My colleague at, at UBC, Dr. Asaf Yogev, um, we, we, we looked at, I'll, I'll briefly discuss and, and, you know, I'll kind of keep it like surface level implications. Um, we, we looked at a bunch of different common cycling, uh, training data. So, uh, what did we do? Heart rate, uh, uh, VO2. So oxygen exchange with, with a metabolic cart, we looked at blood lactate measurements. We took RPE, so just rating a perceived exertion as a nice kind of qualitative measure. And then with uh, muscle oxygenation, we were looking at SMO2, muscle oxygen saturation as well. And we compared two trials. So this was looking at test-retest reliability. And the idea of doing that is to take the same athletes, bring the same athletes back in. We're not interested in looking at the mean value across all of these athletes. We're looking at, we're interested in the difference within each of those athletes between any two given training sessions. And, and so we were able to kind of generate some numbers that, you know, quantify that uncertainty. So again, if I'm doing two different training sessions at 300 watts at the same power output, 
what kind of difference should I expect to see in my heart rate or my my blood lactate levels or or even my kind of perceived effort uh, of that interval? Um, so so I think this is a nice resource, and and you know we can put the link in there somewhere, but. Uh, I think it's a nice resource to have again for coaches and athletes who who kind of with no other information, how variable should I expect all of these different parameters to be? You know, maybe what is the parameter out of all of those heart rate, SMO2, VO2, blood lactate, RPE? What what which of those parameters is maybe the most consistent? Um, if I don't know anything else about my athlete, I can turn to this table and say, oh yeah, okay, so heart rate has kind of a range of uh, plus minus five uh, between any given session. Um, so that's, it's kind of an important uh, or, or it's a nice resource to have just to get a sense of that. So, so I, I'll, I'll give you example numbers. Um, uh, heart rate's a basic one. That's, that's kind of a, you know, our most familiar. And again, we saw that between any two sessions, the difference might be around plus minus five. So there's kind of a range of 10 BPM that um, it's not meaningless, right? We could probably tell ourselves a story of, of why we're seeing that difference, right? I slept poorly. My kid kept me awake, had a coffee beforehand, whatever it is, but it, it kind of doesn't matter. It doesn't indicate that there's any systematic change. You know, my fitness hasn't increased when I've gone from 175 heart rate one week to 170 the next week, because it's within that range of kind of plus minus five. If we compare that to, um, SMO2 nearest, then, uh, the equivalent value is about double that. So it's kind of about plus minus 10. Um, so again, nearest SMO2, it's on a range of, generally speaking, zero to 100%. It's kind of a percent saturation of, of oxygen within the muscle. Um, and, uh, you know, so that, that percent will decrease during exercise. And, and if we're at kind of a constant workload, so again, maybe at 300 watts, my heart rate's at 175 and my SMO2 is at 20. I'm making, making up numbers. But if I do the same workout the next week and I see my SMO2 is up at 28, 30, it's still within that plus minus 10 range. So that doesn't mean that I've suddenly gotten fitter and I'm using less oxygen at that workload. It might just be explained by how I positioned the sensor that day or the, the temperature in the room or you know the workout I did the day before. Any of these, as I've talked about, any of these kind of unobservable random variations that contributes to biological uh, variability. So, so, so that's a nice outcome to just kind of think about what range of variability should we expect day to day? And then therefore, um, uh, what difference in those parameters should we expect to see to be confident that a true change in fitness has occurred, right? If I'm at 300 Watts and now my heart rate's at 165, maybe that represents a true change, uh, uh, because it's kind of outside that range. And, and just for curiosity, what was the range of lactate that you found? And yeah, RPE for that matter. One. That's also that, lactate and RPE would both be important. We can we can put the table in the in the show notes yeah, maybe because yeah. yeah, I think it's it's super yeah. nice to see. Um, so so for blood lactate, it's it's kind of blood lactate was probably the most different at low intensity versus high intensity, and I think that makes sense. Like um, blood lactate kind of increases exponentially as a function of intensity. At lower intensity, it's it's more or less flat, and then at a certain point, it goes haywire and it and it just keeps co increasing continuously. So at low intensity, the the difference day to day within any one subject was about plus minus 0.5, 0 0.5 millimoles um, per liter. So, you know, let's let's think about zone two training, um, not to wade into that 
controversy of how do you define zone two or what is your lactate threshold? There's lots of different ways to operationalize a lactate threshold. But for example, one way, simple way would be to say, um, uh, I want to stay under two millimoles, hard limit. Uh, so if I'm at, if I'm at, if I'm at 1.5, I'm good. If I'm at 1.8, I'm still good. But if, if, if I'm at 1.8, if I observe I'm at 1.8 and I know there's this variability of plus minus 0.5, then again, well, maybe I'm actually above that threshold. Maybe I'm working too hard on that day. Uh, so keeping that variability in mind is quite, yeah, important. At higher intensity, that variability increases by as much as, well, uh, 1.3 to 2.4. So, so let's call it kind of 1.5 as a uh, approximate difference. So at higher intensity, I'm back at that 300 watts. That's high intensity for me. My, heart, my, uh, my uh, blood lactate um, might be different by one or two units. And again, that's assuming it's kind of a steady state, but of course, if it's high intensity, then it's just going to keep increasing. So, so maybe it's more like at the end of a, of a, of a training bout or a training session, it could be anywhere kind of plus minus two units. So it's, it's quite a large difference when we get to that high end, but, um, even at the low end, it's, it's, yeah, it's quite significant to be plus minus 0.05, uh, 0.5. Oh, and you asked about RPE as well. Yes. So, so let's see RPE, uh, RPE was a little bit better. Um, RPE is a scale from, or we were asking it on a scale from, from one to 10. Um, and the difference across the board buzz was about 0.5. And actually it was higher at high intensity as well. So it was about a difference of one, which kind of makes sense. You know, if you do a, a high intensity workout one day, it's going to be an eight out of 10. The next day, it's going to be a seven out of 10. So that kind of makes sense at low intensity. It's kind of, you know, plus minus 0.5. It's a, a, a four or a three. It's kind of hard to differentiate some of that middle RPE range, but, um, for me, I, I I like to see that because the RPE, I think what we, we didn't publish this, but what we looked at was like, what are these differences equivalent to in terms of increasing workload? And um, for example, heart rate, VO2, and I think RPE were equivalent to the smallest step that we had between workloads and, and the steps that we were using were 0.5 watts per kilogram. So these were all trained cyclists performing five minute workloads at one watt per kilogram plus 0.5 watts per kilogram per stage. And so most of those parameters were able to at least differentiate the smallest step in workload that we had in this protocol. Uh, SMO2, on the other hand, I think was two stages. So it was kind of, if we want to think about it, like it was half the sensitivity. So it represents a more variable outcome measure. But RPE, heart rate, those are the common ones that we're using in day-to-day -day practice. Those are, are reasonably better, which is encouraging. Yeah, that is indeed encouraging, and and I think it's a it's a, it's a good message as well because we're always looking to the to the next best thing, and it's been lactate, and it's been SMO two, well maybe less so, but but lactate definitely has been popular. But but if you think about that 0.5 difference, when maybe your low intensity range in lactate is let's call it 0 0.5 to 2.5, that represents 20 percent of your dynamic range, versus exactly. a heart heart rate plus minus five difference when your dynamic range might be 
uh, well, if we stick to the low intensity range, but it might still represent 40 to 140. So, so it's, it's a 100 beats per minute range, yeah. meaning it's more like a 5%. So, uh, but yeah, how, how you describe the difference makes, makes more sense now that I think about it. But, but still, yeah. uh, it, it is, it is encouraging that the classic measures of heart rate and RPE do perform relatively well uh, compared yeah. to the others. And again, as we as we kind of understand ourselves, as we understand our athletes better, this is this is you know these values. Uh, what do they say? Plus minus five BPM, plus minus 0.5 RPE. Those are knowing nothing else about about these athletes. Um, uh, as coaches, we know we should hopefully know a lot more about our athletes, so we can say, oh yeah, for 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 this athlete, I know that their range, you know, they're kind of plus minus two. It's really tight. For this athlete, they show more variability. You know plus minus five or eight in either direction, uh, I can, I can discount, right? There's not a problem unless they're outside of 10 BPM or whatever, right? So, so you can you can, you reduce your uncertainty by making multiple observations of the same athlete and you can start to increase your confidence and decrease your uncertainty, which is, you know, decreasing these, uh, these values as you understand your athlete better. But again, if I don't know the next athlete that walks through my door, I can use these values as a starting estimate. Yeah. No, that's that's perfect, and I'll I'll definitely try to I'll link to everything that we mentioned, including the Twitter threads, and uh, uh, I'll hopefully be able to put some some pictures and uh, the table in the show notes as well, and maybe even embed the Twitter threads if that's possible on the website. We'll have to have to uh, see, but uh, yeah, definitely for listeners that are not following you on Twitter, as long as you're there, <laughs> I would encourage people to 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 do that because uh, you do post a lot of really great stuff. So thank you for that. Thank Thanks, yeah. uh, on on behalf of everybody i think yeah thanks yeah yeah it's it's uh my 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 issue you know on the blog that i kind of used to write on more is is it would end up being like six thousand words and just far too long and so i kind of never got it done and twitter was a nice kind of micro blogging uh platform to just be able to and and you know i like pictures i look at pretty pictures so basically just having a picture and the, the the words were kind of secondary um it's a nice format to get some information out there but i think yeah now i'm kind of almost going back to the blog just that's yeah, it's we'll see we'll see <laughs> I, I had the same issue with blogging like too long posts too much perfectionism and that's why i started podcasting yeah. actually most most people yeah. don't know that backstory but that's what happened that's good that makes sense because yeah we can just waffle on here and kind of just chat and uh you know something comes out of it yeah yeah all right well thank you so much Jem. this has been uh really great and uh yeah hope to catch you catch up with you again another time great yeah thanks thanks again michael have a good uh, evening I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode on scientifictriathlon.com. I definitely recommend following Jem on Twitter because, as I said in the interview, he posts a lot of really good stuff and going quite in-depth in his threads, but uh, doing so with uh, figures and illustrations, which is uh, yeah really visual and, uh, and really helpful, really easy to understand. Uh, definitely check out the papers that we discussed and especially the main one here being the additional effect of training above the maximal metabolic steady state and uh, i won't read out the rest of the title because it's a long one but uh, it is linked in the show notes as well as uh, the other paper that we discussed here towards the end of the episode and i've also linked to three different twitter threads that jem uh, has written that are on these topics that we discussed today one on the first main study that we discussed and then second uh, basically answering the question why can't my apps predict my response when they have so much data on everyone and third how does wearable nears reliability compare to 
lactate, VO2, uh, or heart rate. So those are all super interesting on topics that we discussed here, and I definitely recommend that you check them out, if nothing else, to get that sort of visual uh, understanding of what we described verbally here on the episode. If you want to improve your triathlon performance and want help to achieve your goals, then consider working with a scientific triathlon coach or training plan. We have options for athletes of all different levels, for different budgets, and no matter the size of your goals. A few points to highlight that reduce the barrier to get started is that we have no minimum commitment term and nor startup fees for our coaching. And for the training plans, we have a 100% satisfaction guarantee for plans purchased on our website, and we have an exchange guarantee so you can exchange your plan for another plan if you purchase through Training Peaks. We also have consultation and customized plan options you can find out more about all of uh, these products and services on scientifictriathlon.com and uh, you can contact me directly if you want to discuss your specific goals and needs and we can see what's best for you Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Form, that you can find on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate, and heart rate, and advanced post-swim analysis. Use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form Smart Swim Goggles. And thank you to Zen8. Use the Zen8 Swim Training to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. Even if you have just 15 minutes at home available, you can get a time-efficient Zen8 workout done at home that will help you swim better and stronger. You can try the Zen8 Free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order on zen8swimtraining.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.